Good morning. I'm Chad, one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace. We're glad that you're here. We're going to finish Genesis 19. We've been looking at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah the last two weeks. We've been looking at God's judgment upon Sodom and his salvation of Lot. If you did not hear those two sermons, I would encourage you to go back and listen to them. They will give a lot of the context for what I'm doing today, which is the last part of chapter 19, verse 30 through 38, which we'll be reading to sort of wrap up the story of Sodom and Lot. So look with me there at Genesis 19, starting in verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Let us ask his help in understanding it. Father, we ask that as we consider this word that was given by your spirit through Moses, not only for Israel, but for the church in all ages, we ask that your son, the head of the church, would speak to us by the spirit through the word, that we would hear what the spirit is saying to the churches, that we would see in this devastatingly sad and wicked scene that though Lot and his daughters left Sodom, Sodom did not leave Lot and his daughters. May we, as those who've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son, may we recognize the many ways that the kingdom of darkness continues to be in us and repent and trust in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, the last two weeks we've been discussing Sodom and God's judgment upon Sodom and God's deliverance of Lot. Sodom was a city, as I've said, that was given over to idolatry, to pride, to indulgence, and to homosexuality. I said the last two weeks, Sodom is a microcosm of the world that has rejected the Lord. And the judgment on Sodom is a microcosm of the judgment that the Lord Jesus will bring at his return. In fact, Sodom is used precisely this way in the New Testament by both Jesus 
and Peter. In that sense, this world is Sodom. It's a world that has rejected the Lord. By this, I do not mean when I say this world, I just want to be clear, I do not mean the globe, like the land and the seas. By this world, I mean this world's system, its values, its loves, its cultures. Mankind has turned from God to his own ways. We do not walk in the way of the Lord. We walk in the way after the manner of all mankind. That may express itself in different ways, in different cultures and places, but the fundamental commitment of the heart of fallen man is to turn from God to the creature. And our sinful hearts love this present world. We love it. I say all that as we come to the end of the story of Lot. And I want to end by considering three more lessons from Lot. So I've given you Really, over the last two weeks, four remembrances. Remember Sodom. Remember Lot's sons-in-law. Remember Lot's wife. And remember Lot. And today, I want to remember Lot a bit more and learn three more lessons from him. Here's what they are. First, the wise Christian lives as a sojourner who seeks a better country. The wise Christian lives as a sojourner who seeks a better country. Second... The wise Christian avoids the destructive lure of worldliness. And you can hear if you pay attention, there's overlap in those two. The wise Christian avoids the destructive lure of worldliness. And three, the wise Christian remembers that the Lord can redeem us. Please hear this. The Lord can redeem us even through the most wicked acts. Let's look at our first point. The wise Christian is a sojourner who seeks a better country. Lot, remember, is a believer. We are told by Peter that he is righteous Lot. He's someone who believes the Lord. He trusts the Lord and does, in fact, leave Sodom and does not look back. But Lot is a mess of a believer. Lot is a believer who struggles to trust the Lord. He is a believer who often is going after this present world. Keep your hand here, and we'll look at Lot a bit. Go to Genesis 13. If you remember, Lot was with Abraham. Lot's father had died, and Abraham's uncle was the household he goes to live in. So Lot is in Abraham's uncle's household when God makes promises to Abraham and his household. And Lot hears those promises and travels with Abraham for some time. But then... Abraham sees their families growing and gives a chance for some separation. And notice Lot's choice. Genesis 13 and verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. You notice that? This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom. And Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Remember I've told you the themes in Genesis. When you're traveling east, you're moving away from the garden of God where he is present. That's very clear thematically in Genesis. 
He's also going for a place that looks like the garden to him. And notice you're told that it's like in the direction of Zor. That's going to come up again in Genesis 19. Before Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. Now look at verse 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan. Now when Abram settles there, by the way, we're told in Hebrews, and we see that in Genesis, that Abram settles as a sojourner living in tents. He doesn't live in the city. He lives as a sojourner in tents, looking forward to the city whose architect and builder is God. But that's not what Lot does. Look what it says. While Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Lot, knowing God's promise, being in Abraham's household, has decided that he wants to live for this world. That he wants to go to a wicked city because it looks like a beautiful, safe place. He doesn't want to be a sojourner who dwells in tents with Abraham or even near Abraham. He wants to go east of where God is present with his people. If you remember, God is present with Abraham. Now, let's continue. Go to chapter 19, Genesis 19. We won't survey everything here, but go to chapter 19 and verse 16. Note again, remember Lot is told to leave Sodom because God's going to destroy it. What does it say? But he lingered, but he lingered. He didn't leave Sodom. He lingered. He's warned God's destruction is coming and he lingers and Notice what has to be done. So the men, that's the angels, seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. In other words, Lot had to be, by God's mercy, dragged from this world into salvation. He lingers in the city. He has a hard time wanting to leave this world system behind. Let's look to chapter 19. Behold, your servant, this is they said, you're going to escape to the hills. Now notice what he says. After he escaped to the hills, Lot, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. I'm not going to be a sojourner in a valley or a hill, in a tent. Not going to do it. I cannot do that. So what does he go on to say? Behold, this city, verse 20, is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you've spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. In other words, I want to go to another beautiful place. It's smaller, though, but another place like Sodom and Gomorrah, like Egypt, which we're told in Genesis 13, is what he's always been choosing. I'm not going to go in the hills and be a sojourner. I'm going to go back. If this city didn't work out, I'm going to go back to another city. It just, it's wicked, but it's little. So is it really that bad? It's rich. It looks comfortable. So he is granted that kindness by the Lord. But he doesn't even trust the Lord when he's in the city. Even in the city, he doesn't trust the Lord. Look down to verse 30. 
Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Are you guys tracking what's happening here? Okay, fine, go to Zor. You can go, I will not destroy Zor. Lot goes to Zor and decides, even though God promised me he wouldn't destroy it, I'm afraid I'm going to leave and go to the hills. He is continually averse to listening to the word of God. He is always taking matters into his own hands. Going after the way of this world. And there's a kind of irony here. The man who is so averse to dwelling in tents with Abraham is now living in a cave with his two daughters. But that does lead us to a question. Why is Lot so averse to dwelling in tents with Abraham? Remember, Abraham is not absent from this scene. He was just interceding for Lot. And if you notice in chapter 19, Abraham comes and looks upon the city after God's judgment. And God says, I remembered you, Abraham. That's why I saved your nephew Lot. He could easily go to where Abraham is, where God's church is where God's people is, where God dwells among these people. He could easily go there and be with them, but he refuses. He refuses. He's willing to do anything but be a sojourner with God's people. What's amazing is that Lot's pursuit of this world leads him from a life of success and security in Sodom to hiding in a cave with his two daughters. Friends, it's like a parable of what so many of us do with our lives, isn't it? We are so in pursuit of the things of this world. We are so averse to being with God's people and hearing God's word and walking in God's way. So utterly committed to walking our own way after our own wisdom and listening to our own voice, and listening to the voice of those who tickle our ears, who tell us what we already wanted to hear. We surround ourselves with those kinds of counselors. That we go from God offering us so much peace in righteousness to trembling in fear in a cave somewhere, isolated and alone. Lot's eyes are constantly being set on this world system And that led to him falling into an even greater sin, didn't it? Remember, this is righteous Lot we're talking about. We're not talking about an unbeliever here. I guarantee you, if you knew Lot at this time, you'd be like, that man is not saved. Wouldn't you? This is righteous Lot. If Peter didn't tell you he is righteous Lot... You would never call him that. Friends, we do see Christians with their eyes so focused on this world that they make an utter mess of their lives. They are barely snatched from the flames of judgment, it seems, as Lot was. Matthew Henry rightly said, there are some good men. When he says good men, he doesn't mean that he believes in the naturally good-heartedness of mankind. He means some men who know the Lord, who belong to the Lord. There are some good men that are not wise enough to know what is best for themselves. 
our eyes are so set firmly on this life rather than the Lord that we become tempted to live for the here and now and constantly face bitter disappointment because of it. Now, I want to address an issue that I think some folks are confused about, particularly in this current moment as citizens of the not-so-great state of California. I think we can be tempted to foolishly believe that only blue states are Sodom. Only the blue states are Sodom. Yes, California may seem more like Sodom than Texas or Florida. But friends, there is no red state that is your home either. Because this world is not your home. In one sense, all the world is Sodom. You need to look to Christ in heaven. Paul does not say, if you want to escape the sin of this world, you don't need to go to asceticism. What you should do instead is set your eyes on a red state. Somewhere other than the Roman Empire that's better. He says, set your eyes on Christ, who is in heaven. We are sojourners in this world In every state and every country of this world, we are sojourners. That reality is inescapable. It is true that we're feeling that more acutely now, maybe, than we've ever felt in recent memory in our country. But, friends, whether you felt it before or not, it has always been our reality. Living as a sojourner in this world is challenging, particularly when so much of this world can look like a well-watered garden like the garden of the Lord. But not all that glitters is gold. Don't be a fool who forsakes his soul for the seemingly well-watered gardens of this world. Yes, this lost and dying world still seems so attractive to so many of us. We're so often enamored with this world that we do not even notice how the very things we love are wrecking our lives and dishonoring the Lord. We need to follow the example of those who follow Christ, living as sojourners in this world. Listen to what Paul says to the church at Philippi. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. When he says their God is their belly, he doesn't just mean that they're piggish and they like to eat a lot. He means that their gut, what they feel, what they take in, what pleasures them, what, if you will, gratifies their pleasures, that's their God. And their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Do you see where our eyes are supposed to be set? On Christ. Now, I want to make one more application of this theme of living as sojourners in an ungodly world before I move to our second point. This world hates Christ's church. That isn't new. 
Jesus told us that in John. This world hates Christ's church. This world accuses the church of being judgmental and narrow. You noticed in the story of Sodom that they accuse Lot of being judgmental. He's trying to rescue them from certain destruction. And they accuse him of being judgmental. They accuse the early church of being judgmental. Did you know that? The Romans hated the early Christians. We need to get this straight. Why did the Roman Empire hate the early Christians? In certain seasons. Some seasons the early Christians were okay, but in certain seasons they hated them. Why? Because the Christians believed that the gospel was the exclusive way that people must be saved and they were keen to convert pagans. That's why. They would not honor the pagan deities. I don't know if you guys realize this. The Roman Empire was quite tolerant of other religions. As long as they would also honor the Roman gods. You can have any religion you want. As long as you honor the Roman deities. Christians would not honor the Roman deities. They would not. Further, the Christians would not participate in the immoral behavior that comes from those Roman deities. They often avoided Roman entertainment, Roman schools, and even gave up certain professions because they did not want to participate in the sin and idolatry of the Roman deities. And that made them a threat to the social order of Rome. Thus, they must be persecuted, silenced, and killed. Killed. They were a threat to the social order because they wouldn't honor the deities. And that changed the way they lived because they wouldn't participate in the practices of those Roman deities. Now listen, Tim Keller gave a great parallel here. He said this. Here's what the Roman Empire said. You Christians are too exclusive. You threaten the social order because you won't honor our deities. Then he says this. The modern West. You ready? You Christians are too exclusive. You threaten the social order because you won't honor our personal identities. This is why we need to continue as sojourners. Our eyes need to be fixed on Christ who's in heaven. Yes, that can be difficult, and it's becoming increasingly clear that the enemies of Christ and his church control the institutions of power in our society. But I want to encourage you to remember Lot. In that while this world it seems to be having the last laugh against Christ's people, the world is not going to have the last laugh against Christ's people. We need to remember that God will judge his enemies and save his people. Listen to 2 Peter 2. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord, in other words, if he judged Sodom and Gomorrah, and if he rescued Lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion 
and despise authority. The Lord will judge his enemies and save his people. So we continue to walk as sojourners in this world according to God's word. That's how the wise Christian lives. Let's look at our second point. The wise Christian avoids the destructive lure of worldliness. Now I've already been hitting on this point, as you know, to some degree. There's a lot of overlap here. But the wise Christian avoids the destructive lure of worldliness. Lot is lured into worldliness by his own community, by his neighbors, by his city. Look at Genesis 19.8. You'll see it right here. These men, if you remember the whole city from the oldest to the youngest, all these men are clamoring at the door so that they can commit wicked acts against the angels who've come. What does Lot do? Verse 8. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. This is an unsettling passage. A lot of people want to try to excuse away Lot's wickedness in some way. Friends, this is wicked behavior. For a man to offer his two daughters, who've never known a man, to be assaulted by a whole crowd of men, this is not a righteous exchange. Don't assault my guests, assault my daughters instead. This is wicked behavior coming from righteous Lot. Are you catching that? Clearly, Lot lost sight of God's standard of the law and began to slide off into the standards set by his own sinful society. So what do women matter compared to these male guests? That's wickedness. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Sovereign grace, you can so easily swallow the lies of this world because it's the water that you swim in. Your own culture and its mores is practically the air you breathe. It's so a part of your life, you you have a hard time even seeing. And it's imperative that you know Christ's word. And it's imperative that you are cognizant of the lies of this culture and that you know your own particular sins and temptations. It is not sufficient to just generally say, I'm a sinner. Great, we knew that already. What are your particular sins and temptations? Are you aware of them? In what ways do you listen to the lies of your culture? Are you aware of that? Why is that important? So that you can avoid being conformed to the pattern of this world and so rather be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That is why the Lord gave us the church and particularly elders in the church to apply God's word to our current cultural moments and your particular struggles. We cannot always see our own sin. We have blind spots. You know what the problem with blind spots is? You can't see them. So some other people, godly people who love you, come to you and say, this is a sin in your life. And you're like, no, it's not. We actually have seen it. I don't see it. Exactly. That's precisely the point. You don't see it. And I don't see all the junk in my life. That's why I need you and you need me. So that we can speak the truth and love to one another. And so build up the body of Christ to maturity. 
We need godly people to help us, to confront us with the word of God. I'm not talking about coming down hard on each other. I want to be really careful. I'm not talking about being judgmental and condescending, coming at you with some kind of sarcasm. Well, don't you always, you know, well, this kind of stuff. I'm talking about gently speaking the truth in love so that we all grow into maturity. If you only listen to your own voice, please hear this. If you only listen to your own voice, then you're in danger. You're in danger. I can tell you, I'm the senior pastor of the church, but I can tell you that on more than one occasion, I have personally said to either Jason and Russell or our elders corporately, you brothers tell me what to do and I will do that. I don't trust myself in the situation because I'm too deep in it to see it clearly, but I trust you as those who represent Christ to me. And even if I don't like the advice that I hear, which sometimes I don't, I take it anyway. I take it anyway. I do because the precise point is that I'm not always seeing straight or clearly. And God has put other people around me to help me. I have so many young men who will come to me and say, well, you know, the word says that there's wisdom in a multitude of godly counselors. And they think that means that I come and ask for counsel from all these godly men. And then I've asked for the counsel. So now I'm wise, even though I'm going to do nothing any of them suggested. The Lord has appointed these men to oversee my soul in accord with his word. When the Bible commands you to obey the elders of your church, the Bible isn't saying that the elders have authority over every area of your life. What the Bible's talking about is they are the ministers of Christ who handle the word of God and they do make application of that to our lives. And they are men God has given for the point of giving wise or sound judgments. They're there to help us ministerially. They're not kings who rule us. They're ministers who serve us with Christ's word. Now I want to move to how acute, how relationally near to temptation to sin has become. And can become in Lot's life. Look at this. Temptation came from Lot's closest family members. Keep that in mind. Temptation came from Lot's closest family members. And it came at the weakest point in his life. Look at verse 31 through 35. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father's old. And there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner Pay attention to that phrase. I'm going to come back to it. After the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Alan Ross, a commentator, calls this scene the rebirth of Sodom in the cave. 
Notice the phrase that they want to, verse 31, follow the manner of all the earth. They want to walk after the manner of all the earth. They want to act in the manner of all the earth. In other words, Lot's daughters are quite committed to following man's way. We need husbands. All the men in our city are dead. The men we were betrothed to are dead. All that's left in this cave is our dad. The whole world wasn't destroyed. They know that. They just left the city of Zor where people were fine. This is gross. I don't think it needs to be said or emphasized too much. You all know this is disgusting behavior. But they're not going to follow the Lord's way. Notice what Abraham had just been told. They're going to follow the way of all the earth. Look at Genesis 18 and verse 19. Speaking of Abraham, the Lord speaking of Abraham says this. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him. Lot was part of his household, if you remember. That he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so the Lord may bring to Abraham what he's promised him. They do not want to follow the Lord's way. They do not want to keep the way of the Lord. Lot's daughters reject the way of the Lord for the way of all the earth. God has warned his people about following man's way, hasn't he? We're warned about doing whatever seems right in our own eyes. That's the problem in the book of Judges, isn't it? There wasn't a king in the land, and so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When you are doing what is right in your own eyes, that is a fundamental problem. Because you're not doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. You're not following his word. You're just following your own voice. Listen to what God says to Israel in Isaiah 30. You don't have to turn there. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine. And who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt. That's always a problem. It's returning to idolatry. Without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. Whenever you return to this world and its system to sin and Satan and death for shelter, which we do whenever we do what is right in our own eyes and we do not heed the voice of God's word. Whenever we do that, it turns to our shame and humiliation. What does the wise Christian do? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not parts of your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. Not give a lot of credibility to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Not in in the ways that are convenient for you, acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Are you guys hearing the theme here? Not, well, be somewhat wise in your own eyes. When other godly people come to you with the word of God, just cast them off because you are the fount of all wisdom. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be, listen, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Sovereign grace to set out on a pilgrim journey by yourself without the help of the church 
and to follow this world's path as you do, rather than God's word, is a fool's errand. Lot could have sought shelter and care with Abraham in Christ's church. But instead, he foolishly veered off on his own, and he was left only with the company of his worldly daughters. John Calvin commented on this whole scene with regard to the sin of Lot's daughters. Listen to what he said. They, the daughters, showed their negligence when their hearts were set only on this earthly life, and they were not concerned about the heavenly life. Without calling upon God or asking their father for advice, they were carried away by animal instinct. We see from this how quickly they forgot about their deliverance and the punishment of the sodomites. How quickly they did. The sin of Lot's daughter is wicked. It's wicked when the closest family members and friends you have lure you into sin. Those closest to you know your weaknesses. They know them best. And it is evil when they encourage you to indulge them. Woe to you if you tempt your closest relations, if you take advantage of their personal weaknesses and listen not to their cries for removing particular temptations from them. They are those for whom you should show the greatest kindness and care. In the midst of Lot's despair at one of the most difficult points in his life, his daughters ply him with excessive alcohol. Don't they? And he foolishly partakes in drinking that excessive alcohol. Sovereign Grace, we've walked with people. I can tell you, 23 years of pastoral ministry, nearly 17 years of doing this alongside Jason, we have walked with people over the years who complained to us of their spouse's addictions, particularly with regard to alcohol, and then who refused to remove that temptation from their homes. Refuse. It's not fair. Why do I have to give up alcohol? Because you're married to that person and you're not an individual. You're a married couple. The Spirit has made you one. Give it up. If they're an alcoholic, get it out of your house if they sin with it. Don't keep the temptation in front of them because you're a spoiled child who wants to keep what you think is good for you. We could go on and on about this. Your husband have a problem with porn? Then you better cut the cable or whatever streaming service he has access to it with. It's not fair. I don't get to watch the shows I like. So what? You're not a baby. You understand that? You're a grown-up. Get it out of your house. Don't put it in front of them all the time. It's just evil to take the very thing that's destroying the person you say you love the most and to constantly put it in front of them when it's destroying them. And to say, well, buck up, camper. You need to be strong. You know they're not. In this scene, Lot is snared by the sin of drunkenness. And that leads to really gross sin. Richard Belcher commented on it. It is very difficult to break free from the embedded ways of sin once such thinking becomes a part of a person's general outlook. Lot and his daughters may have left Sodom, but Sodom did not completely leave Lot and his daughters. The father has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. But the kingdom of darkness still lurks in our hearts and minds and our culture and our nation, and Satan and the demons are always on the attack. 
always. We must trust the Lord and we must help one another walk as godly sojourners. Must. Third, and finally, this point won't take long, the wise Christian remembers that the Lord can redeem us even through our most wicked acts. Look at Genesis 19, 36-38. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Listen, this sin of Lot and his daughters leads to incredibly difficult consequences for God's people. Notice the names of the sons. Moab. Do you know what that means? Of my father. How grotesque is this daughter's sin that she names her son of my father. The name openly declares her sin. In this way, she had become like Sodom. Ben-Ami is the other son's name. The son of my kinsman. This is another way to say that I slept with a family member. These girls are gross. I mean, they even named their sons after their wicked acts. If you remember the story, you know that the Moabites, remember the biblical story, the Moabites and the Ammonites, you know what they become to Israel. They are bitter enemies. They are wicked tempters of Israel, just like their mother was of Lot. The Moabites led Israel into her greatest seduction in history at Baal Peor, Numbers 25. The Ammonites led Israel into their most wicked, idolatrous act in sacrificing their children to Molech, Leviticus 18.21. You hear the consequences of this sin? But I don't want to end on that note because they said God can bring grace even through our wickedness. Yes, there are consequences to sin. And yet, in the midst of that, God is gracious to us. I want to end by pointing out an important similarity in the text of Genesis regarding man's sin and God's redeeming grace in two stories. Let's take first the Noah story. In the story of Noah, there is a worldwide judgment. In the Lot story, there's a regional judgment. In both stories, after the judgment is complete and the men are saved, the men get drunk. In both stories, the fathers get drunk and at least one of the children sins against them in such a way that there are serious consequences for Israel and their enemy nations. From the sin in Genesis 9 and Noah and his son comes the curse upon Ham or Canaan. And we get the Canaanites, the Egyptians put, we can go on the list. From the sin that happens with Lot here in the cave, we get the Moabites and the Ammonites. But there's another similarity in both stories that we cannot miss. In both of these stories of horrendous sin, the Lord keeps his promise to graciously redeem his people. In both of these stories, in the Noah story, his son Shem is blessed, and through his offspring, God will send the Christ. But sovereign grace, the Christ will also come through the Lot story. What are you talking about through the Lot story? The Christ will come through Moab. Think of the grace that we see here. This sick and wicked scene is used by the Lord to redeem. Do you remember what important woman is a Moabite? Ruth. Naomi and her husband sinfully 
leave Bethlehem and go down to Moab during a famine. They let their sons intermarry with two women, two Moabites, one of those women, Ruth. The husbands die, the father dies, Naomi and Ruth come back. If you remember, Ruth ends up being redeemed by the kinsman redeemer, Boaz, and they have children. And from their children come King David. And from their children come the Christ. All the way back here in Genesis, in the sin of Lot and his daughter, God, in that grotesque sin, God is bringing about the redemption of mankind. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew 1, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, to complete that genealogy, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Think of the grace of God in this scene. He sent his only begotten son through the line of this wicked and incestuous act. What did Lot and his daughters do well here? Not one thing. What have you done well that the Lord sent the Christ for you? Not one thing. The Lord sent his son as a man to redeem sinful and rebellious men. Jesus was crucified, punished in our place for our sins. He was raised from the dead for our justification so that we might be forgiven of our sins and counted righteous and reconciled to God. And the question is, do you know him? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sins and looked to him for forgiveness? If not, then I exhort you to do so. I'd love to talk to you after the service about what it means to know him and walk with him. But let's be clear, you are a sinner, not just generally, but in many particular ways. And if you don't notice him, ask people around you. They'll tell you. You are justly under God's condemnation. You need God's grace, and that grace is only available in Christ. So you need to look to him and be saved. Look to him and your sins will be forgiven. And sovereign grace, as Christians, I remind you that the Lord can take the mess you have made of your life and like a phoenix rises from the ashes, so Christ will redeem and resurrect you. I cannot promise that God will make your circumstances what you want them to be. I can promise he will make you into what he wants you to be, into the image of his son. And there is no greater hope than that. So trust him. Trust him. Let me pray. Father, we ask for your grace to trust in Christ, to walk in righteousness, to hear your word, to surround ourselves with godly people in the church who speak the truth and love to us, to walk not after the pattern of this world, to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, 
but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we know your will, what is holy and pleasing, acceptable to you. We trust your son for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray for those who do not know Christ that they would turn to him in faith and be saved. For those of us who are continually, like a dog returns to its vomit, going back to the mess we've made, may you help us to walk in the way of the Lord, to surround ourselves with those who will help us do so, to repent of all of our sins, to cast ourselves upon the mercy of Christ. May we know that if you will save us, redeem us, through his wicked an act of Lot and his daughters, how much can we know that your grace abounds to the many? May we trust in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.